This is Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, uh, saying AI is probably the most important thing humanity has ever done, um, more profound than electricity or fire. Princeton University professor Edward Felton. Uh, now, I would not go this far. Uh, nonetheless, it illustrates the fact that he is saying this and that other uh, prominent people in the tech field and in other fields are speaking about AI in such superlative terms tells us that there is a sense that there is a really fundamental change in our relationship with technology that is occurring now. And I think that statement is very defensible. There really is something very important that's happening and changing, even if it would rank below electricity and fire in the grand scheme of things. Welcome to the podcast on digital technologies and human rights, framed by a conference on the topic last April, put on by the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University and the Office of the UN Special Rapporteur for Human Rights and Extreme Poverty. I'm your host and guide, Stevie Bergman. This first full episode is your technology primer. Though I introduced this as a digital technologies podcast, that is an incredibly broad term. Really, the focus of the conference and what we'll discuss here is, is automated decision-making systems and a particularly innovative technology that you may have heard of, artificial intelligence or AI. We're focusing on AI for several reasons. First, this technology is extremely powerful and innovative, and while it may not be brand new, it is fairly recent that its use is so expansive. It is what's underpinning big data in tech companies and is used in everything from text and image recognition to medicine and even hiring, and much, much more. And as we'll discuss in this series, it is being employed in the context of social protection systems, in other words, welfare. That topic will be discussed in the coming episodes, so I'll put it aside for now. Today we're gonna focus on the tech. So that's artificial intelligence. Okay, first, what is AI? I'll let an expert take us through it. This is Princeton University professor Edward Felton. Uh, so let me talk a little bit about what we mean when we say artificial intelligence. And oddly, uh, for something which is deemed to be so important, there is no single widely accepted definition of AI. Uh, pretty much every AI textbook uh, admits um, it, with embarrassment on page one that they're not exactly sure what the term means, that there's not an agreed upon definition. A decent working definition is to say AI is the science and engineering of making intelligent machines, especially intelligent software. That comes from John McCarthy, one of the early giants of the field. But of course, that just sweeps all of the difficulty into the word intelligent. So what is intelligence? Well, we can probably agree that people have it and that we know it when we see it. But nonetheless, there's something deeply unsatisfying about this definition. But we can move perhaps to a different term, which is uh, probably more relevant to our discussion and also better defined, and that is machine learning. Most of the excitement that is around AI as a buzzword these days is driven by advances in machine learning. And machine learning does have a pretty precise definition. Um, it, that is building computer systems that can learn without being explicitly programmed. That is, rather than telling the system what to do, we're going to ask it to figure out what to do based on some kind of indications. So from AI, the practice of creating intelligent machines, we've moved to something much more useful and better defined, machine learning. And this is a subset of AI. And there are three, uh, three sort of categories or general areas within machine learning 
uh, that I want to run through quickly. The first one is what in the jargon is called supervised learning, but we might more intuitively call learning from examples. So in this sort of task, a system is given a set of example inputs, and each example input is labeled with an answer that is deemed to be correct for that input. And we ask the system to infer a rule that can provide uh, correct answers for new inputs that it has not seen before. So we give it examples, and we say, figure out what you can from these examples. We'll now show you new instances, and you tell us what the right answer is. That's supervised learning. The second category is unsupervised learning, or intuitively finding patterns in data. Here, a system is given a set of data points, and it's simply asked to find some kind of pattern or structure that can characterize that data or, uh, or explain it. So an example of an unsupervised learning problem might be something like uh, given a large list of people and for each person what their favorite books are, to simply say, can we divide people into categories? Or can we divide the books into categories such that people who like books in one, people who like a lot of books in one category will tend to like other books in that category? Can we sort of find categories or clusters within the data that helps to explain or predict help us understand what's going on. The third category of machine learning is what's in the jargon called reinforcement learning, which you can think of as learning by trial and error. So here the classic setup is you have a system that is given a set of controls. You can imagine it's a set of, uh, say, levers or dials and buttons that, um, that can be controlled without any explanation of what those mean or do. Um, and the system is put in an environment where it gets positive or negative feedback on how well it's doing at some unspecified task based on how it operates the controls. And the system is asked to try to infer behavioral rules that will lead to good feedback. So imagine, for example, a system that's trying to learn how to drive a race car around a track. And it's simply told that there are some dials it can turn, and one of them it's not told, is the steering wheel, one of them is the accelerator, one of them is the brake. Um, and it's also given, say, an image or map of the track. And it has to figure out to accelerate on the straightaways and then turn left when it gets to the curves and so on just, by, uh, just through the feedback. So these are the different kinds of things that machine learning can be asked to do. To recap, our categories are supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. Professor Felton proposes focusing on supervised learning versus reinforcement learning, learning by trial and error, as this is what is most commonly used in social protection cases. So let's note that, as we'll discuss it further later in the series. And since we're talking about decision-making systems, let's now just take a moment to discuss how we, that is, you and I, even make decisions. Fundamentally, the work in the field is around constructing and manipulating mathematical structures um, in the form of computer programs, that much of the design of those systems is inspired by the brain, but differs from the brain in ways that are significant. And the emphasis on complex reasoning or somehow substituting for complex reasoning. So we make decisions by performing our own complex reasoning. And we do this by basing those decisions, that reasoning, on our models of the world. We don't have a complete understanding of everything in the universe. Instead, we gather the relevant data we've collected and build up a picture of the situation where we need to make this decision. Further, when we make the decision, we choose something to optimize for. 
For example, say we are planning a vacation. Maybe we want it to be as relaxing as possible, so we collect information on all the places we could go, then we optimize for relaxation. And most likely we have a budget, so now we have a constraint on what places we can choose. Perhaps the Maldives would be the most relaxing place, but it's not within our budget, so we cross it out. In the end, we choose a place to go on vacation that optimizes for relaxation, subject to our budget constraints, and this is how we make our decision. When an algorithm is making a decision, you have similar elements, data, an optimizing parameter, and constraints. These are all issues to consider, and they absolutely affect the decisions the algorithm will make. Maybe you can see it already, but when considering algorithmic decision-making, it is very necessary to consider carefully the following. The data being used as that goes into the machine's model of the world. What we're optimizing for, if we're designing a policy, do we optimize for cost, for effectiveness? And though we have the word effectiveness, what does it mean here concerning the data? And there are others. For example, considering this vacation example, how do we convert data on different locations and their many qualities into something that a machine can work with? We need to encode that somehow, and how we encode it will lead to different decisions. So this all begs the question, what is a successful decision? And this leads into, what is a successful algorithm? that there is some metric for how well you did at that task. What percentage of the examples did you classify correctly? Did you win the game of chess? Um, and, uh, and very measurable outcomes, as opposed to uh, other measures of success being on the table. Professor Felton talks about quantifiable outcomes being key. This is because we are discussing computers and algorithms, which operate via mathematics. Thinking about our vacation example, you could ask, how would I quantify relaxation? Budget seems fairly obvious because money or cost is a numerical value. But relaxation? What if we're using a machine learning algorithm for a healthcare system? Can we optimize for healthy patients? How could we quantify health? Keep that in mind as we go along here. If there is a moment of birth for the field of AI, it's probably from a paper in 1943 by McCullough and Pitts. The key idea in this paper is that abstract mathematical structures that are inspired by the structure of the human and operation of the human brain, not exact copies of the brain, but loosely inspired by how the brain operates, can do complex logical reasoning. McCullough and Pitts described a certain kind of electromechanical device, and they showed that by combining copies of this basic unit in complex ways, that you can implement any, any form of logical reasoning that can be written down using informal logic. Uh, and so um, what they showed is that these structures can do complex logical reasoning, and that was sort of the launching point of the field. Fair way to, to characterize today's machine learning uh, is that it represents a kind of marriage of logic with statistics. Just to reiterate a couple key points that Professor Felton makes here. Machine learning systems are mathematical structures that are inspired by the brain, our brains, and can achieve complex reasoning if developed appropriately. And that the complex reasoning that machine learning systems can accomplish is based on both logic, which is how we usually think of computers operating, but also statistics, 
So perhaps you're getting a sense for why this technology, AI, and its more defined sub-branch machine learning is so powerful. A very good follow-up question that you may have developed in the beginning of this episode is, why now? I did say AI isn't new, but that its expansive use is new. So you could ask, why now? Uh, all of this is driven by a combination of three factors. First is access to large data sets. Second is the availability of faster computers on which to run machine learning algorithms. And the third is more effective learning algorithms. And it's the, uh, the uh, mutually reinforcing impact of these three trends is what has driven the acceleration in, in improvement in machine learning in, in recent years. This confluence of events leads us to the rapid expansion of AI across our world today. Professor Felton makes a good case for its use in social sciences in developing evidence-based policy. How AI is and could be a powerful tool for understanding the world. And I want to talk first of all about the two very positive ways that AI and machine learning can advance um, social protection. The first is that AI and machine learning methods are very useful in social science. They can help social scientists better understand poverty and other social ills. They can help social scientists better understand, uh, especially, uh, questions of causality, uh, to distinguish causality from correlation in, um, in complex social phenomena. And this knowledge that emerges from this, especially knowledge about causality, uh, can be very valuable in trying to uh, understand how to do better, how to design better social protection programs. The second advantage, potential advantage, is that AI can lead to more effective, more accurate decision making in many settings. So that programs might better support social improvement and better support human rights. Again, these are potential capabilities if the technology is deployed and designed, used wisely. But there are technical details that are important here. And now we're going to preview a few of them, and we'll discuss them further in episode three. Here's Professor Felton again. Two of the challenges that happen at the boundary between the technical and the institutional or, or policy realms. Uh, the first is uh, issues around explainability, transparency, and accountability. Uh, and the second is issues around the potential for bias in the operation of machine learning systems. So we have a system that makes classifications or predictions based on a large data set. Maybe the classifications are determining your Medicaid benefits, or the prediction is whether or not you will default on your loan, or whether you will be a good employee. A large amount of data is fed into a statistical algorithm, and then there are these outputs. Now, there are questions that come up for us to think about, and we'll come back to them in episode three again. These are questions around, for example, bias. This is prejudice in favor or against something, usually a person or a group. The worry here is in creating a system that is, well, unfair. We usually ascribe bias to people, but this can also apply to machine learning systems. We will get deeper into this in episode three. However, recall that machine learning systems build their decision-making or classifying model off of large amounts of human data and using statistics. So if there is bias in the data set, that is one way to get a biased outcome. If that system is determining medical benefits, say, this could be a huge problem. So for the concepts of fairness and bias, I encourage you to think about what these concepts are and what they mean to you. Some questions to think about. Is fairness the same as justice? Making machine learning systems fair and what that means both 
ethically and technologically and mathematically is a large part of this ongoing conversation. Next, we should mention our own conception of a computing system as an objective actor. There's something different about how the people are understanding the machines, right? Professor Scarlett Wilcock. So I, I spoke to one of the data miners from the um, welfare office, and he would say things like, oh, we just let math and science take over. And I'm like, really, you do? That's interesting, right? So there's moral choices in all of those things, but there's an assumption that it's not, right? And that's, that is a little bit different to how choices of yesteryear were understood. We often think of computers as objective actors. Seems natural. They don't have wants like we do. But what if the algorithm's output is based on biased data? Is the system still objective? Then there's another common concern, which is accountability. If a machine learning system makes what we would generally consider to be a bad decision, who is accountable? Keep in mind that this system was programmed by a human or a group of humans. However, perhaps instead of programmed, which kind of implies control, we can think of it as being set in motion. The humans did not actually make the decision itself, though we should note whether or not to act on that output is the decision of the human, usually, assuming that it's not automatic, say, in autonomous vehicles. Other issues that we'll get into in episode three are the concepts of explainability, transparency, complexity, and so on. Further, there are privacy concerns with respect to data collection and security, and much more. This is definitely a growing conversation. Okay, we'll come back to these concepts, but before I go, let me just give you an overview of our AI primer. AI, or artificial intelligence, is the practice of developing intelligent machines, though as Professor Felton stated, this just sweeps all the meaning into the definition of intelligence. So instead, we can focus on what is commonly used, a subset of AI called machine learning. Machine learning systems are a marriage of logic and statistics, such that they develop statistical models based on data. These models are trained by data, and they are quote-unquote successful if they meet our requirements for accuracy. And there are three different types, supervised machine learning, unsupervised machine learning, and reinforcement learning. Supervised machine learning is what is most commonly used in social protection systems, so we'll focus on that. And supervised learning uses something called a training data set. These are generally hand-classified pieces of data, say emails labeled spam or not spam, for example, through which the algorithms can develop a model. With that model in hand, the programmer then gives the system more data that is as yet unclassified and classifies it based on the model it developed. And we consider it to be a successful model or system if it meets our standards for accurately classifying that new data. Okay. This will all come up again in future episodes, the next of which is your primer on human rights and social protection. Extra resources can be found in the notes for the episode, and please send any correspondence to aihrpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Stevie Bergman. I'll talk to you next time. Alan Turing's famous paper in 1950 called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, it had one of the best first sentences of any paper ever. I propose to answer the question, can machines think? And this paper is really, has a wealth of ideas in it. It is the first proposal of machine learning, for example, but for our purposes, I wanna talk about um, Turing's uh, proposal for what he called the imitation game, which we today call the Turing test. 
and this is the idea, this is the question of, it's a thought experiment, nowadays a real experiment, in which we ask, can a machine impersonate a person in a chat room? So you go into a text chat room, and there is some entity there with which you're chatting. You can ask it any questions, you can have any conversation you like, and at the end you have to say, this is a person or this is a machine. And the idea is that if a machine can consistently fool people in that setting so that it is not distinguishable from a person, um, then Turing says that the machine has passed a test for intelligence. And the key ideas here have to do with the moves that Turing made in order to define intelligence the way he did. First of all, this test for intelligence is testing, is looking for behavior. It's looking for the externally observable behavior of the system. He is asking, does the system behave as if it is intelligent? He is not asking, does it have the internal experience? Is it conscious? Does it have the internal experience of being intelligent or reasoning or thinking as we do? He doesn't ask whether it is like anything to be this machine. He simply asks from the outside, can you distinguish it from an intelligent entity? Um, that's number one. And number two is that the goal is to behave as a person would, setting up us as the ultimate benchmark of intelligence. Often doesn't seem like the best benchmark of intelligence. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this is at least a fixed benchmark to use. One of the interesting things that's, that's happened since this time is in real life implementations of the Turing test, the best strategy for the human examiner trying to distinguish machine from from person is not to ask about reasoning or uh, any formal or knowledge in any formal sense, but uh, indeed to try to probe the d distinctly human aspects. Uh, what, how does it respond if we insult it? What happens if we talk nonsense to it? The, the best approach to distinguish machine from a, a machine from a person today is to see whether it has genuinely human emotional responses. And so, in a sense, this has proven to be a test of, of human-like behavior, but not necessarily a test of intelligence. Nonetheless, the idea that we try to replicate intelligent behavior, rather than trying to emulate the experience of intelligence or the mechanisms of human intelligence, whatever they are, um, and also a human as a benchmark, those ideas still run deeply through the way that practitioners think about the field.